Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. I'm Brenna. Uh, I'm not eager to start this episode, <laughs> Joe, I'll be really honest with you. <laughs> I was like, okay, there is a lengthy pause there because neither one of us want to do this. And yet here we are. Oh my god. Yeah, so we're talking today, folks, about Me and Earl and the Dying Girl uh, by Jesse Andrews. Mm-hmm. So that came out in 2012, and we're talking about the film that came out in 2015. And uh, the book is egregious. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like I had no idea until I posted a picture of myself reading it on Instagram last weekend. And I was like, does this get better? Because so far, I really don't like it. And like, like 10 people DM me and they're like, no, it doesn't get better. Yeah, which is really surprising because when you read formal book reviews yeah. of this, everybody says that it's hilarious, yeah. that it's unconventional, like it's taking down YH tropes and it's like the anti-John Green cancer book because it's not doing Manic Pixie Dream Girl, Cancer Changes You, Makes You a Better Person. Which is true. Yeah. And yet, this, as I was telling you off the air, I think this is the worst book that we've read since I Love You, Beth Cooper. It's really, really bad. Because while there may not be any Manic Pixie Dream Girling of Rachel, who is the the titular dying girl, mm-hmm. uh, in this book, what there is instead is... No, no, nobody cares who Rachel is as a person. <laughs> like, oh, no. It's right there in the title. We don't even bother to name her. She is merely the, the dying, dying girl. The dying girl. Yeah. No, this sucked. And um, the film is better, and we will we will talk about the film, too. And the film actually does some interesting things, but the source material is just so... I mean, it's straight up racist in parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's oh, a, 100%. It's definitely misogynistic. Yep. Wildly ableist. Yep. Uh, just casual slurs thrown through the book. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. just, it's not, it's not nice. It's not pleasant to read. You don't like any of the characters. And, uh, the only one who's remotely likable dies. So, yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those <laughs> books where you very quickly realize that our protagonist is a person that you don't want to spend time with. Yeah. And because it's told from a first person point of view, you yeah. literally can't get away from this a-hole. Yeah. And you're just stuck with him for like 350 pages. And anything interesting that happens in the book is subverted, subsumed by the fact that he is so profoundly unlikable that you don't want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it seems like and through another narrator, it might be interesting. Yeah. Now I wonder, Brenna, because I feel like we might get hit with criticisms because in the past we have talked a lot about mediocre white boy status mm. and particularly how men are written or mm. boys are written in YA. Mm-hmm. And even you yourself have, you know, pushed back against me when I've said this person is not likable. I don't enjoy this person. And you've said, well, it's a teenage boy or it's yeah. a teenage girl. You know, they are fallible. They're learning and all these kinds of things. And I feel like some people could try to make the case here with Greg. And yet I just found it insufferable. I think because when we've had our unlikable narrators in the past, they have typically been on something of an arc or something of a journey where even if you don't like them by the end, they're realizing something about themselves or there's something that redeems that time you spend with them. Mm -hmm. And much like I love you, Beth Cooper, 
That doesn't happen here. And much like I love you, Beth Cooper, I think part of the problem is that the author does not have much interest in or respect for the audience. Right. Okay. So this book, we'll get into it, but this book plays with all these sort of tropes like, uh, oh, this book sucks so much, you're not going to enjoy it. Oh, oh this, this next part is so predictable, you're going to totally see it coming. Wink, wink, nudge, Wink, nudge. wink, nudge, nudge. As if making a clever commentary about your poorly constructed book, like, automatically makes it not poorly constructed. Mm-hmm. It's like meta commentary masquerading as wit. And yes. instead it just highlights how much you don't like what this book is doing. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. And I think too, you know, typically when I push back on you about characters being unlikable, it's for things that are typical teenage behaviors, right? Like we get a lot of small and narcissistic protagonists. We mm-hmm. get a lot of self-involvement. We get a lot of impulsive poor decisions that don't consider other people's feelings and those are frustrating to read as adult readers because we are we've hopefully grown out of them (laughs) hopefully hopefully we've grown out of it and we've taken on whether it's you know important friendships or caregiving roles or relationships where we don't only think about ourselves anymore right? right and so as adult readers that is frustrating and that's one thing right that's a developmental stage that you have to remind yourself you're reading a book about Mm-hmm. This guy is just, he's just, he hates women. Like, <laughs> he's super racist about his best friend. He, like, I'm not sure what the redeeming qualities of Greg are. Yeah, and we're meant to forgive him for yes. all of these things because he is so insecure. And we're meant to do the heavy lifting and say, oh, well, it's really just because he doesn't like himself. He yes. doesn't value himself. And as a result, he doesn't see these qualities in other people. Like he's so withdrawn. He doesn't want to be a member of any communities. But these are not forgivable sins no. because we never get anything. Like even at the end of the book, I kept waiting for some kind of aha moment where he would realize I've been an absolutely terrible person. And instead, it's just, well, this girl died. And I guess I can use this experience to get into college. (laughs) The biggest question at the end of the book is, should I use this dead girl in my next movie? I hated it. I absolutely (laughs) hated it, Brenna. I wanted to throw the book at so many different points. I did too, but I was reading a library ebook, so I didn't want to throw my iPad across. Fair. Fair. (laughs) You know what? This book doesn't deserve your broken screen. (laughs) But that's, I honestly, like... I read the book early this week because I've been boxing myself in a lot lately with the podcast. So I was like, we're taking more time. I was like, I'm going to give myself the full amount of time. So I blew through the book really quickly last weekend. And it was one Good of those call. things where like, I really just want to get over it. I just want to Yeah, you're like, it. please let me just burn through this. Please I can't let this spend be done. more time with it. <laughs> but like, I could not make myself watch the movie. Like normally I watch the movie over like a couple of lunch hours at work usually mm-hmm. is how I do it or um, in the evenings. And like, I kept being like, even if I just watched 10 minutes of it, that would be 10 minutes I don't have to watch later. And I couldn't make myself do it. It wasn't know. until Groot went down for his nap yesterday that I finally was like, all right, I can't get away from this. I'm going to have to watch it. And then I still... Still had 20 minutes left to watch. And I was like, I got up, I got up at six today and watched the last 20 minutes. <laughs> oof, oof. See, I was in a bit of a privileged position because I had seen the film before. So like a lot of films of this era, 2015 was when many, many of these YA adaptations were coming out. Yeah. It's actually one of the reasons that we're doing this particular book is because it's celebrating its fifth anniversary this mm-hmm. year. So it came out in January 2015 at Sundance, and then it came out in theaters proper that June. Mm-hmm. 
So I went to see a bunch of these films in 2015 because they were everywhere. So mm-hmm. listeners, prepare yourself. We're going to be hitting a lot of 2015 this year. <laughs> but I had seen it and I remember feeling that the end of the film was very emotional. It snuck up on me. Mm. So I had good residual memories of the film. And I thought, well, if the film is that powerful, then surely the book <laughs> must be pretty darn good. And listeners... It ain't. No. And I do, I, this is one of the very few cases where I wish I hadn't read the book because I think I could conjure up a lot more affection for the film otherwise. Like things oh, yeah. that are egregious in the book are just sort of gently present in the film. Yes. And the film also makes some really smart decisions in not giving us Greg's entire backstory because, uh, spoiler alert, Greg's entire life is garbage. <laughs> Holy cow. I think you and I had a text exchange. And perhaps after this, we should actually get into it properly. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I think you and I had a text exchange that was basically just a lot of expletives mm-hmm. when Greg was detailing his past history with women. Yeah. And it was just trotting out lazy, misogynistic stereotypes yeah. about women. Literally, our introduction to Earl in this is him talking about women's anatomy and whether or not they're gonna plow women yeah it's so offensive and disgusting (sighs) and i get it teen boys ha ha sexually obsessed very frustrated no i'm not willing to cut this book that slack because it never earns it it doesn't earn it it doesn't i don't even think it tries to earn it because anything that could be an emotionally honest moment is undercut by this meta commentary that just falls so flat yeah Okay, so Brenna, what is this book about? (laughs) I was going to say, I guess most podcasts don't like open with like a solid 10 minutes on why the topic of the podcast is bad and you shouldn't like it. I mean, folks, if you have not read this book, don't please let us spare you the experience. Do not waste your time. mm -mm, It's not good. Um, Okay, Okay, so with that said. (laughs) Right, so Me and Earl and the Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews. So our main character, me, from the title, is Greg Gaines. He's a high school senior, and he's a loner, but he's, uh, I don't know, he thinks of himself as a very clever loner, because what he has done is uh, mapped out all of the high school cliques, and he has decided what the base level interaction is for each of these cliques, so that you can be kind of like on a good acquaintance level with them, but never emotionally connected enough to cause any drama basically yeah he wants to skirt through the high school experience by not making waves with anybody so really what we end up with in the book is like this chapters long meditation on the social structure of the school which ultimately is a lengthy way of him telling us he doesn't have any friends (laughs) sorry i fell asleep there But you know what I mean? Like, that's the problem with the book as a whole is that it does this thing where it's like, oh, I'm doing all this clever social commentary. You just don't have friends, man. You just don't have friends because you're unlikable. Yeah. So early in the book, he finds out that a former friend from back when he still had friends in his pre-high school years. A girl that he abused in an effort to get with another girl. A hotter girl. didn't work out. A hotter girl. Don't forget. Leah was hotter than Rachel. It's really important that we remember that because we get told it 4,000 times. (laughs) Uh, Rachel's been diagnosed with acute myelogenous leukemia, which is one of the less treatable forms of leukemia. And uh, Greg's mom suggests that he should go and rekindle his friendship with Rachel in order to make her feel better, which I do like the way Rachel handles that. 
I like the way the book handles the idea of being forced to be somebody's friend because they're sick, because it's yeah. a believable thing that happens to young people, uh, their parents meddling in their social lives in that kind of mm -hmm. way. And it's her reaction to it, which is basically like, um, no, yeah. <laughs> is also believable. <laughs> um, so I like that. But anyway, eventually, Greg's mom really puts the pressure on and Rachel and Greg start spending time together. So that's the one main kind of social relationship in his life. The other one is Earl. Earl is literally his only friend, but he's so freaked out about the idea of like connection that he doesn't even call Earl his friend. He calls him his coworker yeah. because they make movies together. Yes. Basically they watch like they watch obscure art house cinema and then they make response films to the obscure art house cinema. Mm -hmm. It's my Badly. favorite part of the book is hearing about the movies that they're making because they are quite funny. Honestly, it's like the only part of the book that because you read the back of this book and it's like uproarious. And I'm like, it's not uproarious. But I did enjoy <laughs> the sort of in jokes about some of these movies that I watched in film class. I enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I mean, the movie does it better, incidentally. It does. I think one of the things that frustrated me a little bit about this, less so in the film, because I actually thought that the films they make in the film are clever. Well, the films they make in the film are actually good, which undercuts... Anyway, yes. but yes. Yeah. Uh, I think the problem that I have with it in the book is that it's such... It's such a facile way to try to give this character depth by saying, oh, well, he appreciates <laughs> art house cinema and foreign films. Well, and none of the other kids it. do. I mean, he does appreciate it, but he doesn't like... What they get out of those films is not like what the filmmakers intended them to get out of the films, right? And uh, and that disconnect is what I found, I guess, amusing. Okay. And what they decide to highlight in their film versions is amusing. But yeah, no, I get it. It, it is. It's very much like uh, liking craft beer isn't a personality kind of situation. Oh my gosh, yes, to that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so they're making films, they're and making basically films. what happens is they are asked by the hottest girl in school, who Greg's had a crush on forever. Madison. Madison. She suggests that they make a film for Rachel before she dies. Yeah, because he's been spending, Greg has been spending a lot of time with Rachel. He's been spending so much time with Rachel that he has stopped doing any homework whatsoever. And mm -hmm. everyone at school thinks that Greg and Rachel are dating. And one of Greg's most egregious characteristics is that he will not acknowledge the closeness that he has with Rachel because, again, it would like break his stupid click code or whatever. So he's still crushing on Madison. So yes, he agrees to make this film. They try a whole bunch of different options. They try to make a documentary. They try to make like a video get well card. Uh, they try, I think, sock puppets at one point. Correct. Yep. Yeah, it's garbage. The film is garbage. He doesn't want anybody to ever see it. And then his mom gives the film to Rachel's mom, who then gives the film to the school. Mm -hmm. And the school screens the film during an assembly right before Rachel dies. Yeah. And it's the most humiliating moment yeah. of Greg's life. Greg is humiliated so much so that he goes home and he destroys all his copies of all the films that he and Earl have made together. Oh, he and Earl have stopped talking by this point. I think because Earl tells Rachel about the movie. Yes. And yeah, so because they... he was already unhappy that Earl even discussed the movies with Rachel because they had an explicit agreement that they would never show them to anyone because they're so bad. Ha ha, Greg is so insecure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that, that's important, too. When they have that falling out, they have a physical fight uh, yes. that involves some of Earl's brothers, I think. And Greg's 
Gray gets up hospitalized. Yeah. yeah, he's his arm's broken and he gets an infection in the bone. So he's hospitalized. And that's important because he's hospitalized at the same hospital as Rachel. And so people are coming to visit both him and Rachel. And Earl and Rachel are getting closer during this time period because Earl is actually consistently visiting Rachel through all of this. Because Earl is a genuinely Earl is nice genuinely person. a nice guy who we'll talk about the just inherent racism in this book, but Earl does not get his due in this book. No. So when uh, he finally gets it together to talk to Earl again. He discovers Earl has also destroyed all of his copies mm-hmm. of the movies. It turns out that Rachel had told Greg he should apply to film school. And Earl's like, you can't just do things because people tell you to do them even if they're dead people. Like, you you actually have to develop a personality of your own. Yeah, and like learn to live your life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Greg doesn't because what we find out is that this entire book is an explanation to the University of Pittsburgh about why his grades have fallen this semester. And then he decides he's going to retire from filmmaking. And then he decides he's not... And it's a really just the ending of the book goes back and forth about a hundred times. And then he does apply to film school, but he's not going to apply for six months. And then it ends. Yeah. It's a really anticlimactic, weird ending. Yeah. It's the sound that a whoopee cushion makes when someone (laughs) sits on it. (laughs) Slowly. Yeah. Just a a slow, Slow. wet. Yeah. (laughs) Joe. I just could not, Brenna. Well, I could it's not. Honestly, <laughs> it, the book is sub 300 pages, which we read a lot of YA books that chart well north than of this, that. Yeah. But the ending, it takes solidly four chapters for him to decide he is applying to film school. He's not applying to film school. He is applying to film school. Is Rachel going to be in the film that he makes when he does apply to film school? That takes four chapters. Yeah. Unacceptable. <laughs> yeah. No, no thank you. I mean, it just feels like, I don't know, like this book almost doesn't have a sense of what it's actually trying to achieve. No. It seems as though Jesse Andrews has set out to say, I'm going to write something for young adults that doesn't confine itself to the tropes of young adult literature. And in doing so, he has instead just made this mess, this hodgepodge yep. I am too smart for myself kind of BS, but it's not willing to spend any time with any other character except Greg. Greg is so obviously based on the writer. Yeah. Yep. And therefore he lacks any kind of self-awareness about what a piece of garbage he is. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say this. I'm not deliberately trying to attack the writer. People seem to genuinely like this book. But when I was reading it, I could not understand the appeal. And it felt it felt like a self-indulgent masturbatory exercise. Yes. And also, it it's was. written so frequently. Like, we'll talk about the formalist workings of this. Probably 25% of the book is written like a screenplay, and it feels like he wrote it because he would rather be writing screenplays, but he couldn't do that, so he wrote a book. Yes. Which is ironic, because then he does write the screenplay for the movie. Yes. I agree completely. I think that he doesn't ever commit to a novel. He's so interested in showing how clever he is and how capable he is of writing around the tropes of YA Mm -hmm. and particularly of cichlet YA that he never actually tells an honest story in the process. No, no. He's got a character Mm -hmm. and an outline of a story and then that's about it. There's no mapping. There's no progress. And I feel like 
he thinks that by not doing that, he's actually charting a brave new journey. Mm -hmm. And instead, what he's delivering is a completely unsatisfactory reading experience. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. And like, part of the problem is that because of all that you've just outlined, Joe, he's not interested enough in any of the other characters to make them into human beings. So we end up with a lot of tropes. It's interesting that a book that is so like, I'm deconstructing tropes relies mm -hmm. so heavily on tropes. So like we have <laughs> Earl. Yes, let's talk about Earl. <sighs> Because God. there are two egregious friends in this book, and they're basically in the title, Earl and the representation of people of color, yep. and then women and the representation of Rachel. Yep. Yes. So let's start with Earl. Yeah. Earl, so it's really important to know that Greg's family is upper middle class. Yeah. Solidly. Uh, they're very comfortable. His dad is a tenured professor of philosophy who doesn't seem to ever work, which oh this book has a hilarious idea of what <laughs> post-secondary education is a apparently super easy to get into yeah and if yeah. you can teach at one then basically you get to wear a house coat and eat funny food and sit around the house all day yeah you never Brenna, is that your anything. experience it has not thus far been my experience <laughs> but i am three years out from tenure so let's revisit <laughs> sounds good i look forward to pictures of you in a kimono in three years <laughs> It was funny. I did pause the film at one point yesterday and lean over to Devin, who was watching something else on his iPad next to me, and say, has anybody tasked with dressing a set for a high school ever been in a high school? No. The answer is <laughs> no. <laughs> the cafeteria scenes alone drove me insane. We'll get there. Oh, my God. The history classroom with the wool rug for some reason. Mm -hmm. The rotunda. Anyway, okay, sorry. Um... So Greg is solidly upper middle class. His family is very, very comfortable. He has no worries about finances. He has all the film equipment he needs. He has everything he could possibly want. Mm -hmm. uh, Earl, the only person of color who has any lines in the book, yeah. <laughs> lives in the projects uh, with a single mom, a disappeared dad, a stepdad in prison, uh, two brothers who sell drugs. Yeah. And uh, his mom is completely absent and locks herself uh, in the upper floor of the house and doesn't communicate with her children. Mm -hmm. Don't forget and, that oh, the house is band. completely falling apart. The house is near being condemned. It's literally full of just actual garbage, like mm -hmm. bags of garbage everywhere. And uh, the brothers do not just sell drugs. Let's be clear. They are in gangs. Yes. Different gangs. It's literally every stereotype that a middle class white person who has never interacted with a person of color has yeah. about people of color. Yeah. And particularly about black America. Like it's particularly mm -hmm. a set of egregious stereotypes about black America. Yeah. And it's interesting that a book that is so like, oh, this is what you'd expect to see next in this in a YA novel, but I'm going to do something different, never, ever, ever thinks to subvert any of these particular egregious racist tropes. It's just like, this is just Earl. And it's not like, there's no sort of secret redemptive arc for Earl. Well, I think that the book thinks that it's doing that by having Earl not be involved in drugs or gangs or <laughs> shooting because he actually is smart, but, you know, he's in all of the remedial classes at school. Like, he's just too smart to actually show it. Mm. And these films are his outlet. And, you know, his friendship with Greg speaks highly of him because he's not hanging out with other gangbangers. 
Oh my god, the way they write Earl's dialogue, the way Jesse Andrews writes mm. Earl's dialogue Mm-mm. too. Mm-mm. Uh, the line that sticks out for me is, "Well, I ain't going to no film school." <sighs> Everything is written in like quote unquote dialect. It's painful. Yeah, it's like Jesse Andrews opened up the dictionary of Ebonics and thought, yeah. "Oh, this is classic. I'm going to use yeah. all of this, all of it." It's really uh, unforgivably poor. And we're talking about a book from 2012, and folks. 12. It's not like this is a book from the 70s when people maybe should have known better but didn't. We're talking about a book that is less than 10 years old. And Unforgivable. It's, it's published by Abrams. Like, they're one of the big literary publishers. I cannot for the life of me figure out how this happened. Yeah. <laughs> the only excuse that I can make is that so much of Earl and Rachel is filtered through Greg's inherently narrow and defined point of view that maybe we're meant to infer that this is just Greg's racism and misogyny at work, but that still doesn't excuse it because I still have to spend 300 pages oh in it. Oh my god. It's so uncritical. It's so no. self-reflexive. Yeah. And it doesn't I, the whole thing was awful, but every time Earl, every time we learn any, anything about Earl's life, it's just like, basically, this nice white upper class family is the salvation for Earl because he has a oh, place where he can go. 100%. And it's, it's so yucky. Between that and like the the history teacher, it's just like. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Like, the Michelle Pfeiffer-esque yeah. Dangerous Minds teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's the other thing is like Earl doesn't have any friends at school either. And the implication seems to be that if Earl were to make any friends in his socioeconomic circumstances, uh, he would be dragged below the surface. So he hides out in the history in the history teacher's office to like protect himself. It's just gross. It's extremely, extremely gross. Mm -hmm. It's a weird white savior complex, but double because you're getting it with the history teacher as well as Greg. Yes. And Greg's dad. Yes. Yes. The whole sort of family is like a surrogate family for Earl. Yeah. The only thing that kind of works is that Earl ends up being the best character in Mm -hmm. this book. Like he's the only one who legitimately values Rachel as a person. But you get so little of that because it's not Earl's story. It's Greg's story. And so as a result, Earl is the one who sort of makes the first overtures when things get serious. When Rachel realizes she's going to lose all her hair. Earl is the one who pushes greg to go and see her earl is the one who thinks that the film isn't such a bad idea earl is the one who like shares this part of his life with rachel Mm -hmm. earl listens to her when she talks and like we never get to hear anything about how her death affects earl nothing no not one word yeah this book sucked it's so (sighs) bad all right shall we briefly talk about the misogyny and how rachel is not a character Yes. And then that's maybe just move on so we can actually kind of talk about some good stuff in the film. (laughs) Yes, please. So the problem with Rachel is that she is, as Joe's pointed out, just the dying girl. Literally anybody could have stood in for her. We learn nothing about her of any depth or import. Couldn't tell you if she likes books or... She likes pillows. She likes pillows. Yeah, that much we know because she's a sick dying girl. So a lot of pillows. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying, actually, because the lead up to meeting Rachel is Greg's entire romantic history, which involves him being 
the abusive, worst. <laughs> cruel, manipulative, uh, and just disgusting. Mm-hmm. We get a lot of talk about masturbating. It's all gross. And the reason for it is that Andrews is trying to paint the picture that Greg is like this loser, right? And that mm. he's a loner and that he doesn't make friends easily and that he's socially awkward. But but he still wants the sex. Yeah. <laughs> and because we have to live inside his head, it's not like, oh, just another teenage boy. It's like, oh, I have to spend 300 pages listening to this guy who I've already heard be racist about black people now be sexist about women. Mm-hmm. Yay. Mm-hmm. Just no redemption at There's all. Just no redemption. And the problem is, is that Greg's refusal to get close to anybody, because of course the inherent theme of this entire book is about Greg's insecurity and his unwillingness to form connections, means that he never sees Rachel as anything more than something that he has to do. So Rachel isn't a person, she's an obligation. And even though over the course of the book, you're meant to infer that he's actually growing to appreciate her, the end of the book undercuts that by saying that, you know what, the most important thing is about how he made a film that sucks, and then he got really embarrassed, and oh, she's also dead, and oh, now do I go to college. (laughs) The entire last part of this book just reveals that there has been no character growth, that it's still all about Greg. So it's not that he's insecure anymore. It's that he's a freaking narcissist who literally doesn't appreciate any of the people in his life. No. And that's not an arc. That's a character flaw. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And yes. And the way he treats all the other women in the text is no different, right? Oh, I hate the way that Denise, Rachel's mom, is portrayed. (sighs) And I can't yeah. tell if it's Jesse Andrews thinking that he's being witty, like, oh, she's a waspy. Well, I guess she's Jewish waspy, but um, <laughs> but she's portrayed as constantly being neck deep into a glass of wine, and she's inappropriate towards him. Like, she's the only woman who actually addresses him in a sexual fashion. And isn't it hilarious? Yeah, she's very much, again, because Andrew seems only capable of working in tropes. She's very much a Jewish American princess, all grown up, who has been sort of mistreated by the world, right? So like, she's raising Rachel on her own. And yeah, her daughter is dying. She's basically a lush There's no empathy for her situation whatsoever. We get a tiny glimpse of it triangulated through Greg's mom, who might be the only decent human being in this whole book. Mm, Except that she's a harpy. Except that she's a harpy because she's a woman. Um, And yeah, there's absolutely no empathy for what this woman is going through. It's just like, ha ha, look how she's drunk all the time. Look how she paws at teenage boys. Ha 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 ha. It's awful yeah she's a caricature just like Mm -hmm. 90 percent of the characters in this book because madison Mm -hmm. is the exact same right she's treated as the hot girl who just does whatever she wants Mm -hmm. because she knows she can use her looks to get boys to do things she stomps on the feelings of harmless nice boys right capital n nice boys yeah girls are the worst yeah and she uses her body to get what she wants and she you know she'll gently brush her hand against Earl and she knows exactly what that does to him and it's it's just gross. It's yeah. gross. Yeah. How many times have I said the word gross this episode? Uh gross, insufferable, hated it, <laughs> catastrophe. Yeah. 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 Um okay. Any other thoughts about this garbage garbage? Absolutely book? not. Okay. No. Yeah. Do not read this book. <laughs> Do not. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the film. Yay. <laughs> I have no idea how to tell this story. 
I don't even know how to start it. This is the story of my senior year of high school and how it destroyed my life. Your father and I want to talk to you about something sad. Rachel Kushner has been diagnosed with leukemia. That sucks. It sucks. It sucks quite a bit. You might be someone who could make Rachel feel better. I don't need your stupid pity. I'm not here because I pity you. I'm actually here because my mom is making me. <laughs> it's actually worse. Everyone was going to find out sooner or later. One thing you can do if you don't want to talk to anyone is just enter a subhuman state. Pretend you're someone annoying. Hi, Rachel. I'm really sorry you have cancer. <laughs> exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> so if this was a touching romantic story, our eyes would meet and suddenly we would be furiously making out with the fire of a thousand suns. But this isn't a touching romantic story. Anyway. Yep. Who is this little friend? Earl's just my co-worker. I've known him since kindergarten. What you got, cat? Wanna fight? Then think so, punk-ass cat. So you and Greg are co-workers? Nah, we friends. Dude's terrified of calling somebody his friend. Lou's got issues. But how are you co-workers? We make films. Movies? They're terrible. Greg, you never told me. The idea behind each one was, we took a film that we liked, and we made the title stupider, and then made a new film to reflect the new title. It's a formula that only produces horrible films, but for some reason we keep using it. You need to make a film for Rachel. Hi, Rachel. I don't really know you, but I believe in you. I know you're Jewish, but God has a plan for you. Out of all the people in the school, I don't hate you. Damn. Okay, so the film comes out three years later, and it is directed by Alfonso Gomez Rajon. At the time, he was not incredibly well-known. This was his feature directorial debut. He's actually gone on to do quite a few other things, many of them in the Ryan Murphy canon. So he's done a lot of uh, American Horror Story. He does a lot of television. So he's most recently done the Jewish Revenge series Hunters with Al Pacino. Ooh. And he has a very distinctive visual style. So we'll talk a little bit more about the way that this film is shot. As we mentioned, the screenplay is written by Jesse Andrews, so he is adapting his own book, and apparently, somehow, in the three years between the book and the film, Andrews seems to have grown a brain and figured out how to actually do things the right way. Because this film, I would argue, I think you a little bit less so, makes a lot of course corrections that actually makes the film more enjoyable. I agree that the film is more enjoyable. I agree that the characters are more likable. I still am unconvinced that Jesse Andrews has actually met either a woman or a black person in the intervening three years. <laughs> okay, you know what? I'm not willing to die on that hill, so I'll just let you. <laughs> this film is rescued also by really great casting. Like, these are all incredibly right. likable people in these roles. So yes. I think that even if Andrews is still Andrews, these actors salvage it. But go on. Yeah, no, to be honest, that's exactly what I was thinking midway through this film. Every time Rachel appears on screen, all I could think of was Olivia Cook is literally rescuing this film yeah. with <laughs> her saucer eyes and her beautiful shaved head. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, she's got the nicest shaped head I ever saw in my, oh my life. Gosh. Every time she talked about how <laughs> ugly she was, I was like, she is gorgeous. And yep. I'm not going to lie, not everybody can rock a shaved head. And she not was can. gorgeous, looking yep. so good. Yep. Okay. So cast is comprised of Thomas Mann as Greg. And this is also an interesting change because in the book, Greg is often described as very pale, very pudgy. Mm -hmm. He's, I think, short, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. Yes. So he's, he's basically a troll who lives under a bridge. And mm -hmm. then in the film, they just make him tall and a little gangly. 
Yeah, again, having Thomas Mann explain how, like, wildly unattractive he is as a human being mm-hmm. is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, his gopher <laughs> face, to which I say, no, sir. Nice try, No, though. sir. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Literally been on screen since you were four. So, yeah, okay, go on. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> RJ Cycler as Earl, and this is his big screen debut. I was trying to think of whether or not I've seen him in other things. I don't know that I have. Oh, yeah, okay, I have. He's gone on to do Power Rangers, the film, as well as the terrible screen television series, which oh. no one should ever watch. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So I think he's a good actor in this role. He is, yeah. The thing that the film does the least well is it actually diminishes Earl as a character. Yep. It's a mistake. Which is kind of hilarious, considering he's literally one of the three title characters. But, you know, sure, you do you. He was in Everything Everything, too. Oh, is he? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There yeah. we go. Yeah. I mean, nobody remembers anybody except the two main characters from that movie, and they sucked, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's in that movie, too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, we've got our stacked adult cast. So, welcome back to Stunt oh, yeah. Casting 101. We've got yep. Connie Britton as Greg's mom. We've got Nick Offerman as Greg's dad. Fantastic role for him, by the way. Yeah. And you can tell that they said, oh, we've got Nick Offerman beef up that role. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We've got Molly Shannon as Denise, Rachel's mom. And we've got John Bernthal as Mr. McCarthy, the history teacher. He was on one of those zombie shows, was he not? He was on The Walking Dead, yes. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so Brenna, you said that the film worked a little bit better for you, but you still Mm -hmm. have some concern. So why don't you elaborate on that? I think what the film repairs is the likability factor of all of these people. Like, there's no one in this film that I'm not interested in spending time with. Okay. And I think some of that is revised writing and some of that is just the actors. Like, I think that that is stronger. But Mm -hmm. we're still stuck in a scenario where many of the characters are, well, really all the characters are still just there to service Greg's narrative. And I think... (laughs) sorry i was just grossed out i was like please don't say service greg (laughs) and i think that the film is trying to remedy some of that by giving those actors more to do but ultimately two scenes really stick out for me as being emblematic of what's wrong with jesse andrews (laughs) as a person dig into him There's a funeral scene or a post-funeral scene. I guess it's the wake. Yes. And they're all back at Rachel's house. And both of these scenes happen in that setting. So one of them is that Greg finds Earl and they haven't spoken since before Rachel died. And they have this moment of, I guess, rehabilitating their relationship, although it's a lot truncated compared to what happens in the book. Mm -hmm. And Earl throughout the film has been the one who has the most honest emotional reactions to Rachel's experience. Yes. He's the one who's been willing to speak directly to Rachel about what she's going through. He's the one who corrects Greg when he says things that are stupid. Mm -hmm. And yet we're given nothing of Earl's grief. In fact, Earl doesn't even particularly appear to be grieving in this scene. He's sort of leaning against against the back wall of the house. And Greg goes out and they share a few words and then... But we don't hear them. But we don't hear them. Because at this point it's just like instrumental music because it's almost, it's verging on montage. It is. And Rachel's mom hands Greg the college course catalog that's been passed back and forth between them and has a note in it from Rachel. And there's this moment of like, Earl gives him this look and like this pat on the arm that's like, I'm going to leave you alone with your grief and like walks off. Yeah. And that's the last we see of him. That's the last we see of him. And in that moment, I was like, but are you Earl? 
are Earl, are you okay, buddy? Like, nope, this nope. is also Brenda. Nobody cares. Nobody <laughs> cares about Earl. And then in the just after that scene, he goes up to Rachel's bedroom to read the note that she left him. Mm-hmm. And when he's in her room, oh my god, this pissed me off so much. So <laughs> she's dead now, and he's in her room, and he's first of all going through her stuff, and he's <sighs> discovering that she's like an artist. So we have had no inkling of this through the entire film, but she takes books and she like carves out the pages to render these sculptures inside the books. Mm-hmm. They're exquisite. Yes, and then amazing. he finds he finds like this series of like tiny squirrels. She wanted to go and live with the squirrels. And so he finds that the w- wallpaper of trees in her room, she's drawn all these little squirrels in them and he follows the squirrels around to like these other art projects of hers. This young man has spent Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours in this bedroom. But he cares so little about Rachel as a person and anything about her that isn't related to the part where she has cancer that he didn't know that she drew. He didn't know that she made art. He didn't know anything about her. And the movie sets it up like, wow, like he's finally really seeing her as a whole person. And my brain is screaming, it does her no good. She is dead. (laughs) Well, yeah, because once again, it confirms that the story is Greg's. And it's not at all interested in what Rachel's experience has been like. And I'm pretty sure that Jesse Andrews has been upfront about saying, I'm not interested in telling a story about cancer. I'm interested in telling a story about what happens on the periphery, like... But the problem is, is that it sets cancer up as almost an inciting incident, but then it doesn't want yes. to do the hard labor of saying, what is this actually like, right? Like, this is not a multiple person story. This is literally a one person story. And it's how does this mediocre white boy get impacted by someone else's cancer? It's called Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. We learn nothing meaningful about Earl. We learn nothing meaningful about Rachel. Like, it's all very well to say, I didn't want to tell a story that's just about cancer. Then give Rachel literally any other personality characteristic mm-hmm. other than cancer. Yeah. It's so frustrating to me. I, th- I feel like that is such a cop-out response to the hyper-focus on Jesse as a character and the lack of capacity for empathy that he illustrates because... Like, no one asked you to write a story about cancer, Mm. but you chose to make that the only thing anyone knows about this young woman, and then she's dead. Yeah. Yeah. So don't tell me you didn't write a book about cancer. (laughs) I also love that you literally just use Greg and Jesse interchangeably. Oh, they're the same person. (laughs) So I'm going to push back gently. I don't disagree with you at all about what you're saying, but I will say that because of Gomez Rejean's direction, this scene 100% worked for me. But it's only because I was so emotionally invested in Olivia Cook's performance as Rachel. And then the way that this scene is shot, where there's like a, a childlike curiosity about the discovery that there was so much more to Rachel, and we will never know that because greg is just such a piece of (laughs) (laughs) maybe she would have liked to show you these sculptures when she was alive you exactly (laughs) but like i i was in tears watching this because you just recognize it's such a failure on greg's part but do you think the film recognizes that it's a failure on greg's part i 100 percent think so yeah see i don't i felt very manic pixie dream girl about the whole thing like wow she's given me a new way to see the world and it's amazing that she's done this after her death and then we have that incipient voiceover where he's like it was amazing to be learning things about rachel after she was gone Mm -hmm. you could have learned them while you 
well i'm not i'm not gonna lie i actually (laughs) I, i was very frustrated that the film doesn't just end with that with greg's realization that you know what there was more to this girl and i really should have actually paid attention to that instead of just putting her into the column that says dead girl dying of cancer i must spend time with (laughs) that would have been great and instead my least favorite thing was that the film ends with him done and dust and polishing off like i'm gonna lay on the bed while the printer prints out the last couple of pages so that we can then say you know university of pittsburgh admissions office yeah i'm gonna go to college i was like no you are doubling down on the wrong part of the story (laughs) because guess what i don't give two about whether or not greg gets into film college no i don't care Because Greg is a terrible person. I don't care. Which is hilarious, though, because Brian was watching the tail end of it with me, and he's like, oh, so we don't find out whether he gets in? And I was like, Brian! (laughs) We don't care! We want him to die alone, Brian! (laughs) Okay, but I do want to talk about the way that this film is made, because I think... It is beautiful to watch. I will give full credit to the fact that it is beautiful to watch. It's really interesting. I um, loved the fact that I was so proud of myself for noticing this, Joe. Almost none of the scenes are shot on like a straight ahead angle. Yes. And the camera is almost never stationary. He's always moving and like panning and tilting and following and these kinds of things. But yeah, it's, uh, it's directed in such a way to make it feel very intimate and very fluid so that it kind of constantly feels like we're on the move which is interesting because so much of this film is about how stationary these characters are yes i thought that was really really cool yeah and and this is what i was talking about where it's kind of his stylistic approach so gomez lejean he directed a horror film almost immediately after this like the next year he did a remake of the town the dreaded sundown which is a sort of infamous b slash c level slasher Mm -hmm. and he loves to use depth of focus so like you can see things in like really close up as well as like in the background and then the color scheme is really good so this film feels like he's dabbling like he's experimenting and figuring out exactly what his directorial style will be well i also um and you know i never do this but i actually looked up the cinematographer Ooh. I know. Okay. I know. So his name is Chung Chung Hoon, and he's a South Korean cinematographer. Interesting. I think this is his first North American. It's like one of his early, earliest forays into North American cinema. Mm-hmm. And I guess what he directs primarily, or what he cinematographs? <laughs> primarily? Acts as a cinematographer? Yeah, that. What yeah. he does primarily is thrillers. Okay. Like in South Korea. So I found that really fascinating because, yeah, there's something extremely kinetic about the filmmaking here that I think is part of the reason why the film is so much more watchable than the book is readable. Yes. Yeah. Because it's smoothing over, like even when things are not interesting necessarily in terms of the plot or the characters, there's a certain amount of vitality to the screen. Like even when we get that introduction to the high school, which, you know, is classic YA. It's here's Mm -hmm. this group, here's this group. And Greg is walking through and he's connecting, but obviously not engaging with all these different types of people. The camera is just roving. And we get our first glimpse of Rachel. It's revealed later that it's actually after she's told people that she's got cancer and she's going through tests. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and we just see Greg walk by, but the shot is from super far away, and it's yep. through frosted glass, and it's yep. just after he says a really <laughs> incredibly insensitive yeah. line, and then keeps walking, and you just see her turn and look at him as he walks away. And I just thought, you know what? This could have been done in such a conventionally boring Mm -hmm. way. And instead, it feels like there's a real energy to the film, right? Which is hilarious because it's a film about death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's extremely, it keeps things moving. And there are these great shots where uh, it's interesting because I I still think there's a larger problem with the representation of um, Earl and his socioeconomic class and it's a bit on the nose but there's this one shot where they're showing earl walking from his house to greg's house mm-hmm. and the camera turns completely like on oh, yeah, the vertical it's 90 degrees so that he's literally walking up a 90 degree like mm-hmm. incline to get to greg's house which is a bit on the nose but visually mm-hmm. quite satisfying to watch and it does keep everything moving like it keeps the yeah, I don't know how to describe it. We're almost never looking at any scenes straight on, too, which is helpful in underscoring the extent to which Greg is missing the point of almost everything he does and sees in his life. Yeah, there is one big exception to everything that we've been talking about. And I think it's a very savvy choice. So the moment that Rachel says that she's going to stop her leukemia mm-hmm. treatments. So they're sitting in Rachel's bedroom. She's sitting in the chair. Mm-hmm, in the foreground. Slightly more in the foreground, and he's standing next to her bed in the background. Well, he's lying on it, and then he stands up when she tells her. Yes, she tells yeah. Him. yeah. And this is a long take, so there's no editing, which really shows a lot of trust in the actors, because you're basically saying, okay, I need you to deliver all of these emotional beats, but I'm not going to give you the benefit of like a cut so that you can do a shot reverse shot or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's basically just a static camera, because it's all about these two finally showing their cards and going off Mm -hmm. on one another. And it just allows you to not be distracted by the camera work. Mm-hmm. There's no bells and whistles here because mm-hmm. it's literally just pay attention to feelings. what's unfolding. Because it's, it's the moment of catharsis between these two who have never really been emotionally honest with each other. Yep. And it's really hard to watch as a result. It's incredibly effective. I really love that scene. Yeah. It's almost the climax of the film. And then it mm-hmm. pays off when you get to see again the film that mm-hmm. he actually makes for her. So I really appreciated that the film he makes for her... It's a little surprising to me that it goes this way because Jesse Andrews was so adamant about subverting all the YA tropes. Yeah. And the film. Oh, he loves the tropes in the movie. He loves (laughs) the tropes in the movie. So the film that they make is absolutely gorgeous. It's incredibly experimental. Yeah. It's black and white. It's silent except for a soundtrack. There's no dialogue at all. And instead of showing most of it, like we get glimpses of it, but instead. What we get is, again, just static shots of the two of them watching Mm -hmm. while they're lying in her hospital bed, and she's crying as she's watching this, and then she literally dies. Well, she doesn't literally die. She goes into a coma in front of his eyes. But to me, just so, so affecting, because you're getting all of the shadow and the light playing off of the projector on their faces, and she's watching with something of wonderment, but she's also literally dying. He gives himself the space to do that. Andrews, I mean, gives himself the space to do that, though, by making that like the movies that they have made up to this point the 42 films that they've made in the film version mm-hmm. are actually good like, oh they're, they're not, amazing they're, they're amazing. so good <laughs> they're really clever they're clever they're funny they're inspired they're using all kinds of different like film techniques oh yeah yeah so 
it makes sense for the movie that he makes for Rachel to be good. In the book, it would have made no sense if the movie he made for Rachel was actually good because nothing he does leading up to it is good. No. Right? But I do think that this is one of the smarter choices that the film makes, which is I don't disagree with it you. ends with not just the production of a good film, but also it highlights that the production of the film was exclusively about their relationship. Yes. You know, there's nothing about the whole film getting played to the school so full of students who hate it. Why would it. the principal have even done that? Like, it doesn't make any sense. No. 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 So these are the things where I kind of feel like, well, Jesse Andrews maybe grew up a little bit in between, or he was slapped on the wrist and said, you know what, there's a bunch of dumb garbage in this book that is not going to fly because we're spending $8 million to make this movie, yeah. and nobody wants to see an adaptation of this book because it's not good. Yeah. Now, one final thing to highlight. So mm -hmm. this film premiered, as I said, at Sundance, and it actually won two awards. It won the Audience Award for the Dramatic Section, and it won the Grand Jury Prize in the Dramatic wow. Section. 100% those people didn't read the book. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Because the not. book ruins the movie. The book ruins the movie because I have no, like, I have limited respect for Jesse Andrews as a human being mm -hmm. as a result of the book, and I... There's too much under the surface once you've read the book, I think. <laughs> Don't read the book, everybody. Don't. See the movie if you want to. It's not on streaming anymore. Get it at the library, I guess. But don't read the book. No. Absolutely do not. <laughs> no. no. Uh, shall we do some way bingo? Yes, we shall. Bingo. Not a good bingo. Okay. All right. Hit me with what you've got. We got some dead parents. Oh, yes, we do. Uh, we got some rich people problems. Mm -hmm. I think that we could argue that in the film version, the prom scene slash movie screening is a perfect date. Like right up until she mm -hmm. dies, though. I think. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a it's a bit of a buzz. It's kill a downer. Yeah. Um, we've got mediocre white boys. Oh yes. I think we have. What is it? What is it when the author thinks they're doing acerbic wit? <laughs> Failure. <laughs> Yeah, okay, don't put that one down. <laughs> I think we're supposed to read the friendship with the history teacher as an unlikely friendship. I'm not sure how persuasive we find it. Well, I think even between Greg and Earl is supposed to oh, be Oh, I guess that's supposed friendship. to be. Well, yeah. Or even, you know, Greg and Rachel's friendship. Yeah. The film, I, I did keep thinking, like, when did he learn how to do stop motion animation while I was watching the film? But I won't put convenient expertise on. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What else do you have? Oh, stunt casting, obviously stunt casting. That was really my only other one, yeah. yeah. I've got a bit of musicality as well, just because of, mm, maybe not. I was going to well, say because of the way that music is used in that final scene for the film, but maybe I wouldn't not. disagree with you. Did you know Brian Eno scored the film? I don't think I know who that is. Um, He's like a electronic, like one of the early ambient music dudes. I don't know, he's British. Okay, cool. He's worked with like David Bowie and like all those guys. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, good for him. <laughs> I guess the only other one that I have is maybe growing apart because the whole, more so in the book, in the book. less so in the film, but yeah. it's all about Greg and Earl realizing that their friendship is one of almost forced convenience and yeah. good on Earl for realizing that Greg is a bit of a piece of garbage and that he doesn't need him as they approach the end of high school. Yeah. Yeah. Don't read it, guys. Just don't. It's <laughs> just, uh, just don't. Just let it. Just leave it. It's fine. You're fine. You're fine without it. You don't gain anything. Absolutely. 
Okay, so that is me and Earl and the dying girl. And now that we've covered it, we never have to talk about it again. Never again. <laughs> Where are we headed next, Joe? Okay, so as promised slash threatened, we're going to do a mini-sode that's going to talk about the stealth release of a show on Netflix features a person of color mm -hmm. and we've been surprised because they basically just dropped it and didn't advertise it at all so mm -hmm. we're gonna do a little bit of an exploration of how netflix seems to be doing this and whether or not there's some other things at work yeah but we're gonna specifically focus on a couple of episodes of the show which is called the expanding universe of ashley garcia yep I'm looking forward to this, and what reviews I have seen of it have been really positive, but again, it's been pretty cricket-cricket, so oh, we'll I've check it out. Oh, I've heard nothing until you mentioned it, so yeah. it's all crickets for me. All crickets. So yeah, yeah. no, I think it's, it's going to be worth checking out, and, and yeah, worth having a conversation about what is Netflix doing? <laughs> yes, and then in two weeks, we're going to be back with a regular full-length episode on I Am Not Okay With This, which is another netflix show but has a white lead in it and gets comparisons to stranger things so of course it's <laughs> all over the landing page yes yes and even though i watch nothing but why a series starring people of color uh ashley garcia's expanding universe is not on my netflix main page so no, interesting no um i do want to say joe i read uh the comic that um i am not okay with this is based on yesterday mm -hmm. And I was shocked by some of the contents. <laughs> yes, this is yeah. an author who is not afraid to delve into some really challenging material. So mm -hmm. yeah, so author Charles Foreman has written a couple of different comics that have actually been adapted into Netflix shows. So the one that people may have already watched is The End of world it mm -hmm. ran for two seasons and it's basically about teen sociopaths so i'm not surprised to hear that you found some of this material a little bit dark and challenging yeah i just want to give a heads up to readers i found the ending shocking unsettling and shocking and um just some content warning for self-harm suicide domestic violence so i didn't see it coming uh and the, reading the synopsis on the back of the comic will not prepare you for it so i'm just giving some gentle heads up about that okay good yeah. to know yeah, yeah because when you read it you're like oh it's a girl with superpowers cool yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds enjoyable yeah no no <laughs> So that's in two weeks. I am not okay with this. And then next week, Expanding Universe of Ashley Garcia. Maybe a couple of episodes. We'll see. Looking forward to that. So uh, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find us on the Twitters at the hashtag HKHSPod. That gets you both of us. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to just specifically talk to you about their undying love of Jesse Andrews, Joe, how would they get about finding you? Uh, they should not. But uh, if you have <laughs> other things you want to talk to me about, I am at to be stole my remote. And that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's gray with an A. And if you have anything longer to share with us, for example, maybe you'd like to recommend us some books with male protagonists that won't make me want to scream. Uh, <laughs> you can do that at hkhspod at gmail.com. So nice. uh, yeah, I think we're done. And we're never going to talk about me and Earl and the dying girl again as long as we live. Sounds good. Sounds All like a right. plan. <laughs> Until next time, folks, I shall see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. <laughs>